Zechariah 13. Let me read it. We're going to be looking at the last three verses of this chapter. Let me read it to give you the context. Zechariah 13. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also it will come about in that day that The prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a tiller of the ground for a man sold me as a slave in my youth. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Awake, O sword against my shepherd, against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring about the third part through the fire, Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for this word, which is a promise Of our Savior. It is a promise of our Savior, not just in His coming, but in the worst day of His coming, as it were, the day of His crucifixion. It was the worst of days, and yet it was the best day. For our redemption could not be accomplished apart from that day. And so to that day, He came joyfully and willingly. And to that day, you sent him joyfully to exact your justice against him who deserved no wrath, but endured your wrath for our sake. What an astounding day that was. And what an astounding day it will be when you gather All of your children to yourself, you call them by name, you call them yours, and they call you their God. Father, all that is possible because of the astounding work of Christ. As we consider him in this passage, might our hearts be driven to Him with joy and humility and gratitude. 
Might we even be transformed by what we hear this morning. In the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In his astoundingly helpful book, Rejoicing in Christ, Michael Reeves writes, On the cross we are given not only the sweet salvation of God, but the counterintuitive revelation of God. On the cross we see how humble, how self-giving, how perfectly generous and compassionate the living God is. And that is why Luther wanted all thinking about God to be done in the shadow of the cross. The contemplation of God, our understanding of the nature of God and the character of God is shaped as we consider God on the cross. The goal of the sermon this morning is to lead you into such a contemplation and delight of God our Savior and His work on the cross for you. To remember the basics of the faith, the basics of your faith and the basic of your salvation. The basics of this faith give us spiritual life and give us our greatest hope and our greatest confidence in God. So this morning we go back to Zechariah who looked forward to Christ And see both Zechariah's prophecy of Christ, Christ's work on the cross, and the divine plan that encompassed all of it. Divine plan that not only is to our benefit and for our joy, but also a divine plan that culminates in the salvation of the nation of Israel. We remember the book of Zechariah as we have been in this book for a number of months now. We remember that the last half of the book is comprised of of two oracles or two declarations or two large sayings of God. The first of the oracles is in chapters 9 to 11 and they are the oracles that are largely against the nations. So they're, they're God's refutation of the nations, God's declaration of what He will do against the nations even while there are Elements of hope sprinkled into those chapters. The second oracle is found in the last three chapters of the book, chapters 12 through 14. And both of these oracles are are indicated by the word burden at the beginning of chapters. So chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the Lord concerning Israel. This is God's burden. This is God's declaration. This is God's promise of what He will do for the nation of Israel. And it encompasses all three chapters, chapters 12 to 14. It's for Israel, these chapters. It is designed to make them hopeful, expectant, and confident that Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of the armies, would preserve and keep the nation. In this oracle, we found in chapter 12 that God would preserve the entire nation physically. That's verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12. And He would also preserve them spiritually. That's verses 10 through 14 of chapter 12. Chapter 13 is comprised of just how it is that God is working out His salvation. So how is it that He can save them? Yes, they're humble in 12.10. They are repentant and seeking salvation, but how is it that he can save them? That's what chapter 13 is all about. And then chapter 14 is the glorious promise of Christ's return that we'll begin seeing next week. This morning, we want to focus on the reality of God's forgiveness of Israel in particular, 
and by extension, his forgiveness of us as well. How is it that God can forgive Israel and then give us hope as well? Here's how we're going to summarize these three verses. Be hopeful because God has cleansed Israel through the great shepherd. God cleanses God purifies, God sanctifies, God justifies, God forgives through the work of the great shepherd, the one who will receive, as we will see, his wrath. This, this part of the chapter is highly Christological. It's all focused on Jesus Christ. It anticipates his work in both his advents. Verse 7 is about the first advent of Christ, his work on the cross, and this, the second two verses are about the second advent of Christ when he returns for his people and when the nation of Israel will be regathered as the nation of promise. So even in Zechariah's day, Israel could be hopeful because of the work of the shepherd who accomplished two primary objectives. And it's those two objectives that bring about their salvation And that's what we want to focus on this morning. Where's our hope and where's Israel's hope? So the prophet Zechariah will give us two admonitions. First of all, verse 7, be hopeful because of the shepherd's redemption. Be hopeful because of the shepherd's redemption. And in this one verse, I want us to see, see three aspects of the shepherd's redemption. The first aspect is, let's observe the suffering of the shepherd, the suffering of the shepherd. Verse 7. God is still speaking. He has been speaking in this oracle all throughout chapter 13. He continues to speak in verse 7. And his word is striking. Awake, he says, O sword against my shepherd. So here we have a significant change in tone. So in the first six verses, and that's one reason I wanted to read the whole chapter again a moment ago, is to remind us of what's going on. The first six verses is filled with promise. It's cleansing. It's forgiveness. That's verse 1. And part of the cleansing is the removal of all of the false prophets and all the false teachers and everything that is associated with idolatry. All that will be stripped away. And then there's this huge shift in verse 7. From all this that God is taking away and all that he is providing for his people, in verse 7, there's this tonal change. And here we find judgment. Awake, O sword. Now, he's using personification, obviously. And we understand that because we understand that swords don't awaken, swords don't fall asleep. But he is... He is saying that there is a judgment that is going to be happening through this sword. Judgment is coming. And the sword is a a common picture in the scriptures for judgment and even of death. So we find it used in Exodus chapter 5 verse 21 about Pharaoh bearing the sword. Psalm 17, 13, the Lord bears the sword, the sword of judgment and death. Romans 13, 4, you're familiar with that passage where the government bears the sword. So the government is an agent of God's judgment against unrighteousness in this world. So the sword is judgment. And it seems clear that that's what's going on here. Awaken sword. The time for rest, the time time to not carry out judgment has been put aside. Now is the time of judgment. 
And while it isn't stated explicitly, it is fairly clear from the context that the sword is being wielded by God himself. It's God who's going to carry out the judgment. It's God who's going to carry out the death sentence. And who will receive the death sentence? Notice he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now the question is, who's the shepherd? And there is some diversity here. A lot of commentators believe that he's talking here about the false shepherds. So the false shepherds, for instance, of chapter 10, my anger is kindled against the shepherds. And I'll punish the male goats. For the Lord of God, excuse me, for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. God's going to preserve his people. He's going to carry out judgment against the false shepherds. And so some say this is the fulfillment of 10.3, God's carrying out his judgment. And that's certainly possible. But I think something else is going on here. He says, awaken sword against my shepherd. And he's using that personal pronoun my to refer to a particular kind of relationship. Now it is true that on a few occasions in the Old Testament, God refers to those who are unregenerate as being his shepherds. For instance, in the book of Isaiah chapter 44, Cyrus is called my shepherd by God. So Cyrus was not a believer, but God said he's my agent. He's someone who serves me and accomplishes my purposes. But here it seems that my shepherd is being used in a particular way, set apart, distinct from these prophets that just be preceded in the discussion. So they have a particular end, but also my shepherd has a particular end as well. He's not a false shepherd. He's not a false prophet. He is a good shepherd who also carries out my responsibilities. And then notice as well, he has a parallel phrase in the next line. This sword, this judgment of death is to be enacted against the man, my associate. That word associate appears here. And the only other place it is used in the Old Testament is in the book of Leviticus. And it's used of those who are kinship relationships. It's, it's used to refer to those who are in intimate relationships. It, it means a companion. It's often translated as neighbor. It indicates one who is a peer, a like person. So in this instance, God is saying, awaken, O sword, against my peer, against my companion, against my confidant, against the one who is closest to me. Very clearly indicates a Trinitarian relationship between father and son. The great theologian and commentator Feinberg says, it would not be possible to state in stronger terms the unimpeachable deity of the Messiah of Israel. It is God's declaration in this verse that He intends to carry out judgment against the second person of the Trinity. Christ Himself 
also indicates the closeness of the relationship between him and the father. So he says in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the father are one. There's a uniqueness and a closeness and an intimacy and a kinship in that relationship that can be defined as we are one. And those who are around obviously understood exactly what he was what he was saying. So it says the Jews, those who didn't believe in him, picked up stones again to stone him. Chapter 14 of that same book, Jesus says in verse 9, Have I been so long with you, and you have not yet come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because we are one, because we are kin, because we are intimate, because we are close together. And the whole point of this section is that the Lord of hosts who is speaking, the Lord of the armies, the Lord of all the armies of heaven, all the armies of earth, all the armies under the earth is speaking against his son. And to emphasize that, notice what he says, the fourth line, strike the shepherd, kill the shepherd. My friends, this is one of the unimaginable realities behind the cross of Christ. Jesus did not merely suffer on the cross physically. He didn't just become the sin bearer. He didn't just suffer God's wrath for sin. He became the sin bearer and he suffered the wrath of all sin for those who would believe in him from his Father. It's unimaginable. My children came home yesterday. And we enjoyed a sweet meal of smoked ribeye. Chocolate cake. And as they were leaving, I put my arms around them. And tears began to come down my face. And I said, I need you to know how much I love you. And I'm always in your corner. I'm always your defendant. I'm always for you. Jesus says that's the kind of love that comes from an evil man. Because we're we're broken. We're sinners. The Father of glory poured His wrath on His Son. The Father willingly, intentionally, and righteously poured out all of His infinite anger against sin on His Son. And that's what's being prophesied here. When you read these verses, you can't help but read or you can't help but think about what we read earlier in the call to worship. Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. 
pierced through for our transgressions, crushed by whom? By God for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. Why? Because God put it there. Oppressed, afflicted, because God put it there. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush Him. Putting Him to grief. If He would render Himself as a guilt offering, then he will see his offspring, prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There's, there's good pleasure to be had from the crushing of the sun. You read these verses, you think about the weight that Christ bore when he went to the cross That's why Luke 22 makes sense. Being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. Why? Because it's unimaginable that the sinless Son of God becomes the sin bearer. It is unimaginable that the Father pours out His wrath on the Son. You begin to understand as you read these verses the cost of it when we hear Christ's cry from the cross when he said Eli, 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 Eli rather, Lama Sabachthani my God, my God why have you forsaken me? These verses make sense as we understand Acts chapter 2, men of Israel Peter preaches, listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God it's no accident it was the intentional plan of God to pour out His wrath on His Son for your sin, for my sin, for Israel's sin. Colossians 1, Paul writes about this theological truth. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself having made peace through the blood of the cross. It was His good pleasure to enact Christ's death and pour out His blood on the cross. John Piper writes, The bruising of the Son was because God-honoring sin could not be ignored. And why couldn't it be ignored? Why couldn't God just let bygones be bygones? Because God loves the honor of His name. He will not act as though sin which belittles His glory didn't matter. So God the Father makes an agreement with His Son that He will demonstrate to all the world the infinite worth of the Father's glory. And how will He do that? By taking the punishment and suffering that our sin deserved. How terrible must sin be to enact such a punishment from God against His Son? Punishment that is righteous and not retributive. 
God was delighted to bruise and to use the sword of justice and to strike his son so that justice would be fulfilled and through that appeased justice present to his son an eternal bride that would forever delight in him. And how gracious must the Savior be to endure such a punishment from his father to redeem his enemies and make them his friends. The son was pleased to offer himself as a sacrifice to God so that God's name would be most glorified through the reconciliation of sinners who believed in him. Oh, brothers and sisters, how how beyond comprehension must God be that both father and son were pleased to endure the temporary and fleeting darkness of the cross so that they could bring about the eternal joy of union with us for their glory. That is the redemption that was done at the cross when the Son was struck by the Father. Be hopeful. Be hopeful as you consider the suffering of the shepherd. Be hopeful as well as you see the nature of the shepherd. How is it that such a shepherd can redeem sinners? It is because of his nature. It's because of who he is. And God says two things about the nature of the shepherd in this verse. Notice this. At the beginning of the verse, he says, Awaken, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man. He's a man. And the word here for man is an atypical word for man. It is It is a reference to a man at the height of his physical powers. It is a human being at the most competent and capable part of his life. It's a a part of life that is way in my rearview mirror now. It's man at his strongest, man at his fastest, man at his sharpest intellect. But it is still a man. While strong and while unique and while powerful, he is still a man. And yet, while a man, he is also my associate. We've already noted how this term suggests an intimate connection between the Lord of hosts and the shepherd. The Lord of hosts and the shepherd are one. They are part of the Trinitarian fellowship. He is God. So he is man and he is deity. And combined, these two terms, the man and my associate, suggest that God is speaking of the eternal God-man, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The one who is truly, genuinely God and truly, genuinely man. And the significance of that union is that only a man can die for men. A goat can't die in a man's place. A man must die in a man's place. And only God has the ability to absorb infinite wrath. A man can only absorb finite amount of wrath. But put God on the cross and now he can absorb infinite wrath and pay the debt. And that is exactly who Christ our Savior was. John chapter 1. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. A man 
and yet glorified than God. That's why He can redeem us. Be hopeful as well. In verse 1, because of the scattering of the sheep. What happened in the first century when Christ died to redeem sinners? The redeemed sinners were scattered. Notice what he says. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Parallel phrase, last line. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. To turn my hand against them means to turn my power against them. To act against them. To take action against them. The little ones, the needy ones, the ones who required care. The sheep who were needy. The sheep who couldn't care for themselves. The question obviously is, who are the sheep and who are the ones that are scattered? Well, let's let Jesus help us understand. Jesus interprets and explains this verse after the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus gave the cup, gave the bread and then the cup to the disciples. It says in verse 30 of Matthew 26, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. What's the promise in Zechariah 13? It's the promise that the sheep, the twelve, are going to be scattered. Those who came to Jesus with bravado, with seeming strength, with, with seeming commitment to Him, we'll never leave you. Peter, Mark chapter 14, on that night said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Unless we think it was just Peter that was sticking his foot in his mouth, Mark tells us, and they were all saying the same thing also. That's right, Jesus. We're with Peter. We won't leave you. 19 verses later. And they all left him and fled. All of them. They were scattered. It refers to the twelve. The twelve will be scattered. Not just the twelve though. It was the whole church, wasn't it? The whole church from Jerusalem was dispersed. We know that from 1 Peter. They were dispersed throughout Asia Minor and beyond. They were scattered. Why were they scattered? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11 that God had something particular in mind for the scattering of His people. Romans 11, verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. They were scattered, why? So that the Gentiles could be brought in. So that you and I might be saved as a part of the process of salvation that comes through Christ. 
But he hasn't forgotten Israel, verse 26, Romans 11, and all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion and remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He scatters them to enfold the nations in so that he can bring them back as well. It's all part of his amazing plan of salvation. This prophecy is for us helpful because we have hope in the same Redeemer of Israel. The nation could look at this prophecy and understand and recognize that in their humility and their repentance, chapter 12, verse 10, they would be saved, granted forgiveness, chapter 13, verse 1, through the Redeemer that is coming, chapter 13, verse 7. There's a Redeemer coming, and He will save them, though they are scattered for a season. He will bring them back. We're going to see that in just a moment. And that's our hope as well. The Redeemer has come. The message has been scattered to the nations and we who believe have been folded in. That makes life hopeful for us. So be hopeful because of the shepherd's redemption. A second reason to be hopeful, verses 8 and 9, be hopeful because of the shepherd's remnant. Be hopeful for the shepherd's remnant. He has a remnant of people that he is preserving. And they will be, verse 8 tells us, a faithful remnant. Verse 7 is clearly about the first advent of Christ. And verse 8 and verse 9, I believe, are about the second advent of Christ. In between, in the white space between verses 7 and 8, it doesn't say it, it's white space, There's a couple thousand years or more of duration. And we know that there's a a different day, a different time. Notice he says, he indicates it subtly in verse 8, and it will come about. He doesn't use that term in that day, but it has that sense to it. They're still coming in a future day, in another time, something else. In that future day. He says there will be in that land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish. In that future day, there will be people in Israel who will perish. Ezekiel in chapter 5 talks about a similar event when two-thirds of the nation will be cut off and a third of the nation will be preserved. It is likely that Zechariah here is talking about tribulation events. What is notable here, though, is not the persecution and death of part of the nation, but the preservation of a part of it. Notice this at the end of verse 8. Two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. The third part, the remainder, are going to be left. And that phrase is a reminder to Israel that no matter how bleak things look, God will preserve his people. He will not be left without an inheritance. He will not be left without a people. He has not left his people behind. No matter what it looks like, he's keeping them. He will preserve. And that is a reminder to us that God always has a faithful remnant 
He's never left without a witness and a testimony. Think through Israel's history. God preserved a remnant of 70 people when he took Israel to Egypt under Joseph. And that remnant became millions 400 years later. Elijah was a faithful prophet against 450 prophets of Baal. But it wasn't just Elijah, was it? There were 7,000 others who likewise hadn't bowed to Baal. God preserved a remnant in Babylon that returned to the land. That's what's really behind this whole uh, prophecy in Zechariah. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and you read in Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 1, and read through all the lists of names, and you're just turning page after page of all these names and the numbers, and you're just getting lost in this, and you're saying, I don't know who these people are. Yes, but God does, and they're His remnant, and He's numbered them, and He knows every single one. He's preserving them. And in that final day, the remnant of God's promise will be saved. Again, Romans chapter 9. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel would be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. He will save his remnant. Chapter 11, verse 5. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He's saving, He's preserving, and He will bring His people home. It's true of Israel. It's true of us. You ever think, am I the only one who believes this way? Am I the only one that thinks this way? Am I the only one that lives this way? I just feel so out of place. Am I the only one that's left? It's tempting to think you're alone. Oh, friend, you're not alone. God has His remnant. And He will bring the remnant home. He will preserve. Notice this as well about that remnant that there will be a fiery refining. Verse 9. I said, as we were looking at verse 8, that the emphasis is not on judgment, but on remnant. That's largely because of what the focus is in verse 9. The third part will be left in it, end of verse 8, and I will bring the third part through fire. The focus, end of verse 8, and all the way through 9, is on this remnant, his preservation, his keeping. And he says, I will bring that third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined. I will test them as gold is tested. He's going to preserve them, but he's going to preserve them through refining. And just as silver and gold go through fire and heat in the refinement fire uh, refinement process... So Israel will go through a process of persecution to refine it as well. But note this. Do not lose sight of this. It's easy to say, I don't like the persecution. I get it. I don't think I've ever run towards persecution on purpose. 
I know some who do, or I know of some who do, but that's not me. That's not natural, right? You go, I don't want that. But don't miss this about the persecution. Don't miss this about the refining. The fire for gold and silver is not designed to destroy the gold and silver. It's designed to get out the impurities. And when Israel on that day goes through the refining process, the process is not designed to destroy Israel. It is designed to make it precious by purging all unbelief and cultivating genuine faith in his chosen people. That's the reminder to us that suffering, even suffering at the end of the age, is not designed by the Father for punitive purposes, but for purification purposes. To make us, to make his people Israel devoted to him. The good end of the suffering for Israel in the final days is that they will be purified. And not just purified, but there will be a familial regathering. And they will, having been refined, call on my name. They will not look to the false prophets in verses 1 to 6. The false prophets will be gone. Idolatry will be gone. They will turn in faith and repentance to God, to Christ, the Messiah. They will call on my name for salvation. They will call on my name in repentance. And I will answer them. There is no one capable of answering the need and the request of the suffering of the Israelites, but God alone, and he will hear and he will respond to their cry for help. Here, brothers and sisters, is the final salvation of Israel. Here is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that he would make him a nation. Here's where that is enacted. I will Answer them. This is a reminder to us that God is a prayer hearing God. He loves to hear prayer. He delights to answer prayer. Now, He will not answer a prayer that is made in pride and arrogance and rebellion. But He will answer every prayer that is made in humility and repentance And need. And my friend, if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you, like the nation of Israel, has a tremendous need. You need a Savior from your sin. And you cannot do it on your own. He cannot be appeased, His wrath cannot be appeased by anything you do. He will pour out His wrath on you unless you repent. But if you repent and if you go to Him and if you say, Will you save me? He will always answer and he will always say yes. Well, friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I beg you and urge you, go to him. And as verse 1 says, let the fountain of forgiveness wash away all your impurity. And he will hear and save you. Notice the result. 
of this salvation. They call on my name. They come to me in repentance. I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. Here is reunion. Here is regathering. Here is fellowship. Here is family. A family that has been disharmonious and separated will be, will be reunited. I, I wrote in my notes the word permanently. Not just permanently, but I mean like permanently. Eternally. The Father says they're mine. And they say He is mine. They're my people. When God says they're my people, it denotes ownership. They belong to me and me alone. Hosea chapter 2. I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is what we were reading about in Ezekiel chapter 34. The shepherd goes to buy sheep and pay for sheep and bring them into his flock and say, you are mine. You belong to me. And not just does God say in fulfillment of all of his promises to Abraham and Moses, And beyond, they are my people. But they say, the Lord is my God. Did you notice the pronouns in that phrase? They say, the Lord is, and you would expect what? Our God. Plural matches plural. But that's not what will be said. They, plural, will say the Lord is My God, all the nation is saved. But each individual will say he's my God. It's talking about the totality of the nation and the totality of the individuals. All of God's purposes for the salvation of Israel have been accomplished. Summertime's officially over this weekend. Some of you this summer have regathered with family during these months. And I suspect that for some of you, there was a measure of trepidation in some of those visits. Family was coming to see you and you were saying, I don't know how this is going to work. Or you were going to visit family and saying, well, you know, we're taking our car. If we need to leave a day early, we can you gathered with family. You might have been concerned about words that might be spoken in anger. And desires that were exposed that were something less than righteous. Actions that might be taken that were unseemly. I don't know about in your family, but family, family reunions always aren't delightful, are they? But there's a day coming. When the Father 
will gather his children. And the father will say to the children, you're mine. And the children will look at the father and say, you're mine. And it will be perpetual joy. That's Israel's promise. And we have been grafted into that promise so that we share in that same kind of joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, I say with reverence that even God can never show His love in a greater manner than He did on the cross on Calvary's hill when He delivered His own Son up for us all. He delivered His Son for us all that He could bring us back to Him. Even when the Father turned His sword against the Son, there was delight and there was joy for both of them. And in that judgment that the Father enacted against the Son, Israel and we have been delivered from the penalty and power of sin and demonstrated the greatness of the glory of the Son. What a Savior. Our Father, we thank You for this Savior, Jesus Christ, who knew of this prophecy, who knew what it would be like to be struck by the Father, who didn't just know of the prophecy, but made the prophecy with you in eternity past and embraced it with joy so that he could redeem Israel, so that he could redeem us. Father, as we leave this place and we go back into our world and go back to the places where you have apportioned us to be this week, might we gain hope through the Savior who was stricken for us that we, along with Israel, might say, you are my God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.